Great to be with you this morning. We've um, had a little break from Matthew, but we're going to pick back up now in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And this morning we're going to talk about retribution, revelation, and rest. Retribution, revelation, and rest. But before we do, let's pray together again. Father, we come to you now just asking for grace to hear, believe, trust, and obey all that you've spoken. God, give us wisdom, give us insight, give us understanding, give us faith. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask for help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as I... As you turn to Matthew 11, I just want to reflect a little bit on, as I did earlier on Psalm 95, and um, in fact, if I turn there quickly, um, there's one verse there where it says, uh, where it says, well, it says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. It says, when, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And so do you, see, do you see God's logic there? The logic is this. The fact, the fact that they put God to the test was bad enough. But it wasn't just that they put God to the test, but they put him to the test after they had seen his work. After he had parted the Red Sea. After he had struck Egypt with ten plagues. After he had, you know, uh, was feeding them and, and giving them water to drink and all these things, and they still grumbled against him. And so it's clear that their rebellion was all the worse because they had seen his work. And we see that this is uh, precisely uh, what Jesus said of his own generation. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we. Talk about retribution, a revelation, and rest. And so if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. Verse 20. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, where you be exalted to heaven, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses 
to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of God. You may be seated. So as I said, this morning we're going to be talking about three things. Jesus' retribution, Jesus' revelation, and Jesus' rest. Jesus' retribution, Jesus' revelation, and Jesus' rest. First, we're going to talk about Jesus' retribution. So as we look at this passage, as always, it's important to remember the context. In verse 20 it says, Then he began to denounce the cities. And so there seems to be some connection there between his denouncing of the cities and what just happened. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, what just, what just happened is Jesus has explained to them, uh, he, he was explaining to them about John the Baptist, okay? And he concludes his uh, uh, talking about John the Baptist and uh, his ministry, okay? Uh, in verse uh, 18 there, he says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And so, uh, and, and so Jesus was speaking, right, against this generation because they had rejected John the Baptist, and just like they rejected John the Baptist, they were rejecting him, and they were going to reject him. You know, no matter, and, and John was an ascetic, right? He was kind of, he was harsh and a wilderness man. And then Jesus was a little bit different than that. He was, he was, he would, he would go to the feast and he would eat with tax collectors and sinners. But no matter which way the word of God came to them, they didn't like it either way. Because the, their, their rebellion wasn't ultimately, you know, they used the messenger as an excuse. But, but the thing they really rejected was not the messenger, but the message. And the one who sent it. And so Jesus says he begins to denounce these cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Verse 20. Because they did not repent. Okay. And so Jesus makes clear uh, that uh, about why he was renouncing these cities. He was renouncing them because it was in them that most of his mighty works had been done. Right. And yet they still didn't repent. And, it, and so if we reflect on that for a few moments, we realize, I believe, some really important things. First thing that we realize is that implicit in that denouncing, of course, is that Jesus understood and assumed that his miracles had, had the major and I would say the primary purpose of leading people to repentance. Right? That, that's implicit. If Jesus, if they're accountable for not repenting, because they had seen his mighty works, the, the assumption there in Jesus' mind is that his miracles were for the purpose of leading people to repentance. Right? And so that's what's so important. Jesus, Jesus healed people and he did amazing things. But guess what? Everybody that he healed still eventually grew old, got sick, and died. His, the, 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 the point of the healings wasn't to give them their best life now. The point of the healings was that they might know that God had come among them. And that they might repent of their sins and find forgiveness of their sins through Jesus Christ. So then, and only then, could they have real, true, and lasting life. 
And so in the same vein, I think in Jesus' ministry, we as Christ's people should be utterly committed to doing good to people. And notice, Jesus healed, Jesus did a lot of healings on a lot of people. And he fed, he fed uh, this, this, uh, this crowd of people who were hungry, who had flocked to him. And in the book of John, it says later, though, it, it, John uh, comments on that crowd and says they were really following him just because they wanted their stomachs fed. But, but what did Jesus do? He still fed them. And so we should do good to people, whether they respond to it as they should or not. But at the same time, we're not doing good for people just to do good for them. We're doing good to people so that they might know Jesus. So that they might repent of their sins. So that they may see our good works and give glory not to us, but to our Father who is in heaven. And that's what Jesus did, that it would... That we do good so that we do earthly good so that it would bear the fruit of eternal good. And that's what Jesus did. But the primary purpose of his miracles was not just to do good to people. It was to lead people to repentance. And, and two, the second thing we see when we reflect on this is that, now get this. It's that if they didn't, uh, be, because they did not respond in the right way to Jesus' miracles and kindness and mercy to them, because they saw it and did not respond to it in the right way, guess what? It actually will make it worse for them on the day of judgment. That's what it says. That's explicitly what it says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done had been done in Tyre and Sidon, uh, uh, works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. He says the same thing about Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? The same people who received this unbelievable good. Okay? And revelation to them through Jesus' miracles. The same, the, that same good and that same revelation that God gave them. I mean, think about it. They got to see what no one else got to see. They got to see the Son, God incarnate in the flesh, walk among them. They got to see that. No one else got, we don't get to see that. That, that, is a, that is a privilege that was afforded to them that wasn't afforded to us. God, there's the, God grants different people, different times, different places, different seasons, different privileges. We're not accountable for the privileges we don't have, but we are accountable for the privileges we do have. And this is what it says. Because they saw him, and because they saw these great miracles, and yet still didn't repent, it will be worse for them. On the day of judgment, than for those who didn't see it. With with greater revelation comes greater responsibility, and this is and Jesus taught this elsewhere in Luke chapter twelve, for example, in verse forty two. It says, "And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant." Whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, 
will, severe, will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Texts like this, uh, this text and others like it, I believe, teach varying degrees of punishment in hell. Just like I believe the Bible teaches varying levels of reward in heaven. God is just. He renders to each person precisely what is due, no more and no less. Now, some people think that the fact that hell exists at all is automatically unjust. But what that shows is an anemic view of God, right? How can, you, how can you presume to sin against the almighty, omnipotent, one and only, infinite, eternal God and think that there could be no, no retribution? Nevertheless, in hell, there will be varying levels of punishment based on what you believed, what you did, and not just that, but on on the amount of revelation that you rejected. That's why it is a frightening thing. It is more frightening to go to church every Sunday and yet walk out the door with no intention of believing and obeying. More is far worse to do that than to, than to, than to just be out there and just doing your own thing. Far worse to have the, have the light brightly and reject it. That's why A.T. Robertson, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, said something this effect one time. He said, hearing a sermon is a dangerous thing. How deadly it is to have the path of life and the gift of grace being almost shoved into your hands, as it were, and then you just slap it down in the dirt. I don't want that. And that's what's so dangerous, that's what's so deadly about, especially our modern, western, you know, western, we, 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 we think we're so smart. We think we've got the world tamed, you know, with our technology and our universities. We think we know it all, or with our science, we think we got it all together. So we despise grace, not realizing that to whom much is given, much will be required. It's hard, I think it's hard for us to grasp the shocking nature of Jesus' statement. Tyre and Sidon were cities that were regularly condemned throughout the Old Testament. Okay? They were not, they were not, the, uh, you know, they were not the, the pillars of righteousness. Okay? Regularly are Tyre and Sidon condemned in the Old Testament largely because they were what? They're coastal cities. They were huge, major, ancient centers of trade. They became very wealthy cities. Okay, and what they do? They trusted in their wealth. They loved their wealth. They loved the money and the comforts that their money afforded. Therefore, they, didn't, they, did, they saw no need for God. And the Jews knew that. And yet, Jesus comes and talks to these Jewish cities and says, guess what? It's going to be better for them than for you. Or what about, my goodness, what about, what about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? To this day, used as metaphors of depravity and severity of judgment. And yet Jesus says the men of Sodom and Gomorrah will, will be on the cool side of hell compared to those who heard his voice, saw his miracles, and didn't believe. That should make us tremble. 
That should make us tremble. That people could see Christ perform miracle after miracle and say, no, not for me. And, and, and it's easy. It's easy to say, well, if I was there, I wouldn't do that. Well, let's just ask ourselves the question, how, how much am I obeying God right now? Am I much better than them? God's kindness, God is so kind. He's so merciful. But guess what? Paul says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And how, what is it if we say, if we receive all of his mercy, receive all of his good things, but then just say, but no, I won't obey you. I won't follow you. I won't trust you. We, it's easy to take his goodness for granted. But as the psalmist say, we say today, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. We can believe, we can trust, we can, we don't, it doesn't have to be like this. The people, they had a, they had, they had, they had a choice when confronted with Jesus. And, the, and the, the, right, the right response is to surrender, to believe, to trust, to obey. So first we see Jesus' retribution. Second, we see Jesus' revelation. Verse 25 through 27 says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So, these, these condemnations on these cities are followed by Jesus' um, praise of His Father. I thank you, Father. Jesus' praise of his Father for his sovereignty in his revelatory work. What we see here, and the same things in John chapter 6, by the way, you can go look at it there. That, that, that God's, that there's a sovereign aspect to God's work that's going on here. There's a reason that underlies how it is that people could see these works of Jesus Christ and yet still reject it. We think, we think, how is that possible? How could you see Jesus' work and still reject it? But that's what I think that the point there that, 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 that is so profound is that this, that's what the human heart is apart from divine grace. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. The human heart is so darkened by sin, so depraved, we love our sin so much that even in the face of undeniable revelation, apart from divine grace, we'd still reject it. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, he puts it in the form of praise. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. So this for Jesus... This is important here, I think. This for Jesus isn't a neutral reality. It's a reason to praise God. It's a reason for God to be praised. It says that it was pleasing to him. Literally in the Greek it says, uh, it say, well it says, for such was your gracious will. But literally it says, because it was pleasing before him. It was well pleasing before him or, or to him. It pleased God in his wisdom 
to humble humanity by turning human wisdom upon its head. It's precisely those who think they are wise in this world that apart from God's uh, 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 apart from who in God's sovereignty, they, they can't see the most important truth that there is. And yet it is precisely the poor in spirit in the world who know that they're ignorant, who know that they need God. It's to them that God reveals the greatest truth in the world, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3, and, and you could go look at it. it well, in fact, I, I have the scripture here. Let's just look at it. It says here in first, uh, well, first Corinthians one right here, it says, verse 18, it says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, now look at that, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. You see that? It was part of the wisdom of God that he made reality in such a way that you can't know him through sheer human wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God in his wisdom made believing in Christ foolishness. You see that? Who would, be, who would think that a man crucified would be the savior of the world? Who would think that the greatest man who ever lived would die the most cruel and humiliating death that could ever ha- happen? When you tell people today, I believe, I believe that a man 2,000 years ago rose from the dead and I'm willing to die for it. When you tell the average, and, and, and you say, because of that, and you say, because of that, I trust Christ more than I trust myself. I don't, I don't follow my will, I follow Christ's will. I don't do what I want to do, I do what, I do what God wants me to do. I, I, I love my wife, I'm faithful to my family, I don't sleep with whoever I want to. I love my kids, I deny myself, I work hard, I do this, I do that. I'm not ruled by my emotions, I'm not ruled by my feelings, I'm ruled by God. And if sometimes God says one thing and I think something else, I believe God more than I believe me. And the world looks at that and I say, that's foolishness. And the Bible says, in the wisdom of God, it pleased God through foolishness. In the wisdom of God, it pleased God through foolishness to save those who would believe. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's folly. Christ is folly. It's foolishness. It doesn't make sense to those who don't believe. But to those who do, it is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the difference is the divine revelatory act that, goes through, that, that, that happens through Jesus Christ. Why? Because the human heart is so darkened that apart from the grace of God, no one would believe it. Jesus says, verse 27, this is a tough verse. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, the, father know, the son knows the father in a deep and personal and intimate sense, right? And being a Christian is what? 
being a Christian is knowing God like a father, right? It is, it is to become a child of God through Jesus Christ. So the only person who can reveal to us the nature of what it's like to be a child of God is the child of God, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can reveal that. And so Jesus is the only one who has knowledge of God like he has, and he's the only one who can impart that knowledge to others. Okay? And so, and so this is talking about the, the biblical doctrine of election. And the reason why I think it's so hard for us to grasp the doctrine of election and why so many people rail against it, I think, is because of the American idols that we have of ultimate self-determination. We think that we are the ones who are supposed to be finally in charge of our lives. And the Bible says we don't ultimately determine our lives. God does. And that's a hard pill for people to swallow. We don't like it that there's someone greater than us who rules over our lives. It's a hard pill to swallow. It humbles us. And some people, and it's so humbling, in fact, that some people, most people probably, they can't bear it. They can't bear the thought that they are so utterly dependent on God that they can't even believe in Jesus without Jesus. And what does this mean? I think it has some important implications that I think you, we have to get just right. It means this, that if we are a Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, it is, be, it is solely because of the sheer Sovereign grace of God. You were blind and God made you see. You were dead and God made you alive. You didn't do it, God did it. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's the sheer grace of God. And if we get this right, some people think, some people think the doctrine of election makes people arrogant and some people who believe in it are arrogant, but that's, because, that's not because of the doctrine of election. It's because they, they misunderstand the doctrine of election. Because the doctrine of election says, I was so blind, I was so dark, I was so dumb that I needed God to come and give me light. And, and the person who really gets this will be the humblest person of all. Because I wasn't smart enough... If I'm a Christian, it wasn't because I was smart enough to believe in Jesus. I can't even brag that I believed in Jesus. Because it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. And, and this, is, this is what we see in Acts 16, 14, for example, when Paul shares the gospel with Lydia and it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And because of that, that verse, for example, contrary to what some people say, the doctrine of election doesn't deter evangelism. It shouldn't. Because exactly, it says Paul shared the gospel with Lydia, and it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So often we don't share the gospel because we feel ill-prepared, or we feel like their hearts are too hard, or we feel like we just don't have all the right answers. But see, every one of those excuses is based on the false assumption that that person's salvation depends on how well you share the gospel. And that's a lie. Because, the, the, because you are not the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And you deliver the message. And you let God use the message to give the light. 
And see, that's the difference. We think, I, you know, I don't know it well enough. I can't answer all these questions. Look, you don't, you don't save people. God saves people. You're the messenger. You deliver the message. And God says, Paul had nothing to do with Lydia's salvation except being the mailman. He delivered the message, but the Lord opened her heart. And so what I'm saying is that far from deterring evangelism, it should give us unbelievable, bold confidence in evangelism. Because I can look at any person in the world and say, if God, if when God wants to save him, they won't be able to stop him. Their heart might be black as smut and hard as diamond right now. But guess what? If God shines the light, it's game over. And because of that, guess what? There's no pressure on us. And really, it's, and it, should move, it should remove all fear because we just deliver the message. And God says, and it should give us, in fact, it should give us profound confidence to share the gospel and to pray for people knowing that God saves. And then finally here, we just remember that election and human responsibility are both biblical truths. They, the Bible teaches both of them and it's, it's wrong, it's an error, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an error in the, to, it's a misinterpretation uh, of the Bible, I would say, to use one to try to make the other disappear. Because some people will say, well, because of election, well, we just shouldn't share the gospel with people. You're using one to evaporate the other. Or some would say, well, if God's in control of whoever, who's ever saved or whatever, then guess what, I'll just, if God wants me to be saved, I guess I'll be saved and I'm not going to worry about it. But see, that, but you're using one to evaporate the other when God teaches both. God is sovereign, sovereign and man is responsible. There are two, there are two tracks on which the kingdom of God flies forward into the future. They're parallel, they run in tandem, but they never cross. That's the biblical perspective. We know this because of the passage that we're looking at right now. Jesus says in verse 27... Um, he says there right at the verse 27, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you. You see that? In our minds, we say, how does that work? How could, how could Jesus in the same breath say, whoever the Son chooses to reveal Him, and in the same breath say, come to me? All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. How could they both be true? I don't know, but they are. We, it's not up to us. We, we don't have to try to philosophically make what God says to be true work. If it works in the mind of God, it works. We don't have to try to make ourselves smarter than God. We just have to believe and obey the Bible. Somebody, it's, the story is told, I assume it's true, I guess I don't know for sure, but the story is told about Charles Spurgeon, and somebody asked Charles Spurgeon, Charles, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty, election, and human responsibility? And he says, I don't reconcile friends. Don't have to reconcile friends. Another uh, uh, illustration attributed to Spurgeon is the Christian life is like a door that you walk through. And on the front of the door, it says, whosoever will. That's the call. That's our call. That's the call that goes out in the gospel. Whoever will believe the gospel will be saved. That's 100% true. That's the call. You, whoever is listening to me right now, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You walk through the door of salvation. 
And when you walk through the door, you turn around, and on the other side of the door, over the door says, chosen before the foundation of the world. That's how it works. That's how it works. It's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We're not off the hook. And God is still sovereign. God, and, and so, our, it's God, what God sovereignly decrees to do, that's God's business. But our business is to obey what God has spoken. And this is what he says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that takes us to our last part here. Jesus' retribution, Jesus' revelation, and finally Jesus' rest. Number three, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, that's what's so amazing, is just as he talks about the revelation of how it is that we can know the Father only by revelation from Jesus, he, in the very same breath, invites everyone to come to him. That's the biblical tension. And the invitation from Jesus is real. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There are many people today, probably everybody in this room, probably everybody, is tired. Tired. There's a lot going on. And sin makes life hard. My sin makes life hard. I don't always treat people like I know I should. That makes life hard. I don't always love people like I should. That makes life hard. People always don't treat me like they should. That makes life hard. Sometimes the relationships between... In, with the very people I love the most aren't working. It's hard. Sometimes I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels but going nowhere. In Jesus' day, when he talks about burden, he uses uh, the word or, or one like it, talking about the burdens that the Pharisees would lay upon the people. The temptation, it wasn't just then, the temptation in every generation, especially in, in religious society, religious culture, if you were raised up in church, there's this great temptation to think, i got to get my act together for God to love me. But see, that's why I think that this Freedom, this lifting of the weight is closely tied and connected in Jesus' mind and in Paul's mind, I would argue, in his letters, with, with divine election. And that is that, <laughs> that Jesus comes to lift a thousand, a billion burdens from your life. Because the truth is, is 
no matter how hard you work, you can't, you can't reach heaven, which is what everybody's doing. People think, if I work hard enough, if I can get in this position, if I can have this type of relationship, if I can be with this kind of person, if I can have this, have this, do that, do that, then I will finally be there. I'll finally get it. And and we work and work and work. And guess what? We never get there. Because Jesus says there's only one way to find rest. And guess what? It's not in your work. It's in mine. Jesus is the only one who lived the life without sin. Jesus is the only one who lived perfect obedience to the Father. Because you couldn't. And since Jesus worked for us, you can take a break. And that's what Jesus is saying. Remember, this is what he's talking about. Son to father, father to son. What, What is all that talk? What is all that talk? It's because when you become a child, right? When you're somebody's child, at that point, right? At that point... When, when you belong to somebody in a parent-child relationship, at that point, the father's love for the child is not dependent on the child anymore. You understand that? You have children, you know what I'm talking about. Your children could do anything in the world and it wouldn't stop you from loving them. Why? Because they're your children. And what Jesus is saying is when you come to me by faith, Believe in me. You become a child of God. And guess what? That's it. You're one of the family now. Now, of course, of course, that'll change your life. It has to change your life. Right? Knowing somebody changes your life. Relationships change your life. Well, if I love my parents, then if I love my parents and I'm really part of the family, then guess what? I'm going to, I'm going to, that's going to change me, right? Relationships change people. When you know Jesus, it changes you. But that change is the fruit, it's not the root. Jesus Jesus comes and he lifts the burden off of our shoulders. And when he does that, it's like he gives us new energy and zeal to serve him in a way that we couldn't before. When, when When religion is just... It's just about what you do. This is why a lot of people, they get it. They, they don't get it. And then, and then that's, why they, they, that's why many people walk away from the church. Because they thought the whole time that, their, that religion was about what they did for God. Rather than what God did for them. And coming to church and reading their Bible and all the Christian things to them wasn't a, wasn't a delight. It was a duty. And Jesus comes and he turns that on its head. And he, and he says, come to me and take a break. I love you. Because when you turn from your sins and believe in me and trust in me, guess what? My love for you no longer depends on you. And when you really get that, when you really believe that, when you know that you're loved in spite of your flaws, guess what? It makes you want to work on your flaws. Doesn't it? Because... Because I'm loved in spite of them. And, 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 and he's going to love me even if I treat him badly. Guess what? I don't want to treat him badly anymore. Because he loves me. Right? It's the difference between buying my wife flowers because that's what good husbands do. 
Oh, hey, Meg, I bought you some flowers. Oh, thanks, Chad. This is so great. Yeah, I, I know I'm supposed to, so I, I, I hope you like them. Oh, yeah, that'll go over real well. Oh, God, um, I read my Bible today. I know that's what good Christians do. Thanks. That's not how it works. Meg, I bought you flowers because I love you and I couldn't help myself. Oh, that's something different. God, I came to church today because I love you and I couldn't help myself. God, I read my Bible today because I love you and I couldn't help myself. It's totally different. It's the difference between a religion and a relationship. And Jesus says, all, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see that? That's the difference. It's not that Christians have no yoke, right? A yoke, you do work with a yoke, right? You plow with a yoke. It's not that we have no work, yoke. It's not that we have no work, but it's a different kind of work. It's not heavy. It's not a burden. It's a delight. It's a duty. So as we close this morning, the, this is the invitation. It's Jesus' invitation. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I can have full confidence in that invitation because God is at work. And perhaps at this very moment, there's somebody here, there's somebody watching in line, online who the Spirit of God, and you know in your heart of hearts that the Spirit of God is drawing you to come to King Jesus. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word, for the truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you can give us, that you have given us, rest. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you, through, 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 what you, through who you are and through what you have done, you love us in spite of us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And I pray this morning that by your sovereign grace, a lost soul might come to you this morning. That they would see how they have trusted in themselves, in their power, their strength. And Lord, they're tired. And this morning they're coming to you for rest. I pray that it would be, Lord, in Christ's name. If the Lord has ministered to you this morning, the altar is open. If you'd like to pray with me about anything, I'd be glad to do that. If you'd like to talk more about how you can follow Jesus Christ, I'd be glad to do that. If you're online and you'd like to talk with somebody um, or pray with somebody or talk about how you can follow Jesus, just please contact uh, me through social media and I will get with you and be glad to do that. However the Lord has spoken to you, please respond.